Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. We are in the final days of 2018, a year that marked some pivotal moments for President Trump, for some members of Trump's campaign team, for Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller, and for Mueller's investigation into Russia's election meddling. From that investigation this year came indictments, charges, guilty pleas, and sentencings. But which of these moments mattered most? What's still unknown about Russia's interference in the 2016 election, about the Trump campaign's possible ties to Russia, about the president's possible obstruction of justice? In the second installment of our year-end look at the legal threats surrounding President Trump, we're recapping this year's notable moments in Mueller's investigation and what it all means for the year ahead. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. To go back in time, Robert Mueller was appointed special counsel in May of 2017. This is a significant step. We are learning that the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has appointed former FBI Director Bob Mueller to now oversee the Russia probe and look at the possible connections between Trump campaign associates and Russia. This and since then, the there have been many developments. The Post's political investigations reporter, Rosalind Helderman, is behind some of our most notable reporting this year around Trump and Russia. She says that over the course of the year, two clear tracks of the Mueller probe have emerged. One is that he really reminded people that his original mission was to explore what the Russians did in our election. And so he brought two major indictments over the course of the year that didn't involve Americans. It was just of Russians who did bad things in our elections. That's the allegation. Uh, one of those indictments was of people who were involved with a social media influence campaign, this troll farm, the Internet Research Agency that's based in St. Petersburg. And um, this was what prosecutors call a speaking indictment. There is not much expectation that the Russians will ever be brought to the United States to face charges. They will not be extradited. And so the indictment itself was by Bob Mueller's opportunity to sort of explain to Americans how the Russians had used social media to influence how Americans thought about their own politics. So he brought that indictment. And then over the summer, he brought a separate indictment of intelligence officers, Russian intelligence officers, who actually were involved with the hacking of the Democratic National Committee and of John Podesta's emails. And so one of the things we learned through that is that he had much more detailed information than I think people knew about the actual specifics. I mean, some of the, the information in those indictments were just incredible about particular Russian individuals who had performed particular Google searches for, for phrases on a particular day. I mean, the intelligence involved was just extraordinary. So that's been one big thing that we've seen from Mueller this year. What did the Russians do? 
And part of that effort from Mueller was to inform the public, was to kind of remind people, as you say, that Russia is a big part of this investigation. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I think that was almost entirely brought to inform Americans rather than to actually put anyone in jail. Because we are unlikely to get these Russians to America. I mean, they are not going to get on an airplane and step off to come to the United States for their vacations in Florida anymore. They are not coming anywhere close to America, and they're not going to see the inside of an American jail. Uh, And so it was much more about explaining what evidence he had gathered and what people should know about what the Russians did in the election. Okay, so you say that's track one. What is track two of this investigation? Track two is the part that's still sort of unfolding over time, and that is, did the Russians have any help from anyone involved with the Trump campaign? Uh, So just the very end of 2017, we saw the very first sort of legal action, guilty pleas from Mike Flynn. Handcuffs for Michael Flynn. He surrendered and walked into the federal courthouse in Washington to plead guilty to a single charge. And George Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos, he was a foreign policy advisor to the president, described by the president as such. And this is different because it's not a charge. He has pled guilty. And then over the course of this last year, he went after uh, Paul Manafort, uh, the former campaign chairman, Rick Gates, the deputy campaign chairman, and Michael Cohen. None of the legal action that has been taken so far proves that there was coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia. But he is clearly sort of exploring moments of contact between Russia and the campaign and people who were involved with Russia. Michael Cohen, who was involved with Donald Trump's efforts to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, and Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, who had this extensive personal business history involving Russians and were in contact with Russians during the campaign. So Mueller identified these people close to Trump because of potential interactions with Russia, but he also found additional crimes that surrounded many of these people. Yeah, that's right. And we've seen that as a pattern. It's a very common pattern for prosecutors. Uh, They identify key figures who might have knowledge of what they really want to know about, and then they see whether they can turn them, essentially, by seeing if they've committed other crimes that would compel them to wish to plead guilty in exchange for leniency and provide information against other people. Given this pattern of Mueller targeting people close to Trump, let's look at some of those people and some of the moments that they had this year. First, let's start with Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager. He was charged with many crimes in 2018. That's pretty significant, right? Yeah, tremendously. I mean, Paul Manafort was the chairman of the campaign, and he was present for some really key moments as Russia was interceding in the election. Uh, He was the chairman of the campaign at the time of the famous Don Jr. Trump Tower meeting where he meets with the Russian lawyer who he was told had dirt on Hillary Clinton. Paul Manafort sat in that meeting. Paul Manafort was the campaign chairman at the time that the DNC emails were released in July and Donald Trump famously came out publicly and said, you know, Russia, if you're listening, you know, find Hillary Clinton's deleted emails. So he's present for really key moments and his knowledge might be really great. He also was in contact throughout the campaign with an employee of his political consulting business, a Russian man who we have been told by prosecutors had ties to Russian intelligence. So we're talking about the campaign chairman of Donald Trump, who is in constant contact throughout the campaign 
with someone with ties to Russian intelligence. You can understand why they would want Paul Manafort to tell them everything he knows about Russia, Russians, what happened in the campaign. But just to be clear, Manafort was not charged with conspiring with the Russians on behalf of Trump's campaign. That's correct. He has not been charged with that. Since his initial indictment in 2017, Paul Manafort has, however, been charged with bank fraud, evading taxes, violating foreign lobbying laws, witness tampering, and obstruction. Several of the charges against Manafort were brought to trial this summer. And on a very dramatic Tuesday in late August, the jury in Manafort's trial came to a decision. This was such a dramatic day. The jury had been deliberating uh, for several days in Paul Manafort's trial, and so there, there was kind of a waiting game for when they were going to come back with a verdict. We have some breaking news in the Manafort trial. Nicole, I'm being told that the jury has reached a verdict in eight of the 18 counts. And as I recall, we heard that they had a verdict just as Michael Cohen was headed to court in New York. As Americans awaited the verdict of the Manafort trial, news broke that Michael Cohen, Trump's former personal lawyer, was unexpectedly making an appearance in New York federal court. Michael Cohen is expected to reach a plea deal. How extraordinary is it that these two stories are colliding at the very same time? And so you had this split screen of Virginia and New York, and then they ultimately both were convicted of eight counts, like nearly simultaneously. Manafort was convicted of eight counts related to tax and bank fraud charges. The judge declared a mistrial on the remaining 10 counts against Manafort because the jury failed to come to a decision on those charges. Michael Cohen's simultaneous guilty plea convicted him on eight counts. That plea carried a meaningful implication. So the Michael Cohen case, uh, President Trump's longtime personal lawyer, worked for the Trump organization since 2007 and was known for his sort of loyalty to Donald Trump and then uh, shocks everyone by strolling into a courthouse in New York and pleading guilty to start with uh, in a case actually that was separate from Bob Mueller's investigation brought by prosecutors in New York. And that was a case that had a few different elements to it. Part of it was, once again, personal finances. Michael Cohen was not paying all of his taxes. And he had also committed bank fraud, like Paul Manafort. So quite a few of his charges had to do with his personal finances. And then he really stunned everyone by also agreeing that he had committed crimes in the paying of uh, women prior to the election who had accused Donald Trump of having affairs with them. These were two payments, one that came directly from Michael Cohen to the adult actress Stormy Daniels, and another where uh, Michael Cohen had arranged for the publisher of the National Enquirer to pay money to a uh, Playboy centerfold, Karen McDougal. In both of those cases, money was paid in exchange for the women's silence. They did not speak up prior to the election, and these were considered campaign contributions. And Michael Cohen, in this really dramatic moment, got up in court that day and told the world that, yes, those things were done to influence the election. Yes, they violated campaign finance law, and he did it at the direction of Donald Trump. Since then, Michael Cohen has also pleaded guilty to a separate charge from Mueller's investigation of lying to Congress about his contacts with Russia. He's been sentenced to serve three years in prison. He's the first of those close to Trump to be sentenced to significant prison time. 
As for Manafort's legal status at the moment, he pleaded guilty to two additional charges in September and agreed then to cooperate with Mueller's prosecutors. But Mueller says in interviews with those prosecutors, Manafort lied to the Justice Department, breaching his plea agreement. Because of that, Mueller has recommended Manafort to be sentenced immediately, and Manafort is awaiting that sentencing in jail. Given the many developments since that day in August where Cohen and Manafort were simultaneously convicted, I asked Rosalind how important that day seems in hindsight. Well, I would answer that in two ways. The first is that we shouldn't forget the obvious, right? Here you've got the campaign chairman for the Donald Trump campaign and one of the president's uh, closest advisors, a guy who had loyally served the Trump organization for 10 years, and they are both being convicted of major criminal activity that's going to send them to prison for years. That is hugely significant. At any other time, in any other administration, that would be the legacy of this administration, that one day. But because this has been such a big, broad saga, we want to know what comes next. And the question of what does that day lead to? Does it lead to convictions of other people? Does it turn out that Paul Manafort or Michael Cohen had knowledge of a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and a foreign hostile power to affect our election? That we don't yet know. All right. Well, I want to ask you about one final person in Trump's orbit that faced some legal moments this year. That would be Michael Flynn, so Trump's former national security advisor. He recently had his sentencing delayed a year after pleading guilty to lying to the FBI. What did we learn from Flynn's sentencing memo out of Mueller's office? We didn't actually learn an enormous amount because that memo, which was highly anticipated, was very much redacted from public view. The way this works is when you take a plea deal like Michael Flynn did, you're exchanging your cooperation for a lesser sentence. And so when it comes time for sentencing, the judge wants to know how valuable was that cooperation. And in this case, we got a document in which the government said he'd been helpful, said that he had provided uh, substantial cooperation. That's a legal phrase, and that he should receive uh, little to no jail time for having lied to the FBI. That's what he pled guilty to. And the judge was not happy with that. Like, you know, another moment of incredibly high drama, you had the judge scolding Michael Flynn about the seriousness of his crimes and sort of essentially telling him, look, I know the special counsel's office says you've been helpful, but I don't know enough about how helpful you have been. And if you want to be sentenced today, I'm telling you, buddy, there's a good chance you're going to get some jail time. Despite both sides agreeing you shouldn't, I'm the judge. I make these decisions. And so the judge sort of gave him this option. Are you really sure you want to move forward today when I can't judge the full nature of your cooperation? Or do you want to push this thing off so I can see how helpful you've been in potentially other cases that are going to come forward? And, you know, Michael Flynn did what I think anyone who does not want to go to prison would do. He said, never mind. Let's let's put this thing off. 2018's final weeks of dramatic legal moments are a reflection of Mueller's strategy targeting those close to the president. That approach has given Mueller access to some of the people closest to Trump during his 2016 campaign. 
But as far as Mueller's access to one particular person, that's not as easy. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. The relationship between Trump's legal team and the special counsel's office has been quite rocky this year. One particular point of tension revolved around Mueller's avid pursuit of a direct interview with the president himself. This has been a running storyline sort of all year long. We have known that the special counsel's office wanted to ask questions of the president himself. They've interviewed, you know, dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of witnesses. But at the end of the day, only the president knows what the president knew. And so they've wanted to speak with him. And there's been this sort of back and forth between the special counsel's office and the president's legal team. The president's legal team was not anxious for this to happen. And there has been sort of an unsettled legal question. Can a prosecutor force the president of the United States to sit down for an interview? He can force the rest of us to do that. Anyone else he can give a subpoena to a resistant person, force them to come to a, into a grand jury and require them to answer questions. And your only recourse, if you get a subpoena and don't want to answer the questions, is to say that answering the questions might incriminate you and you are going to take your Fifth Amendment right to not answer them. That's true for anyone but the president of the United States. And so you had this dance of could they get him to agree to do it voluntarily. So ultimately, they really didn't. They did not come to an agreement to have him sit down for an interview. Uh, The president's legal team did agree to take some written questions and to come up with some written answers, uh, but only about things that happened before the 2016 election. So basically, did the campaign coordinate with Russia? Not about things that happened once the president was in office and might have and is under investigation for potentially using the powers of his office to obstruct the investigation. There have been no questions about that. And part of this deal they came up with was that Mueller could come back to him and say, we've got follow-ups for you. Uh, And so we don't really know where that's going to head. Have the events of this year provided any insight into the piece of Mueller's investigation that focuses on whether or not Trump or people around him obstructed justice? I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that the president continues to speak about this investigation publicly. He continues to talk to his aides about it. He does all these things that a lawyer would tell you are unwise because you don't want to be interpreted as potentially obstructing justice. And so you've got this sort of running, rolling investigation of ongoing activities. And, you know, there's a lot of tricky legal issues. There are legal disputes about what constitutes obstruction of justice by the president. And one consistent theme throughout the year is that Bob Mueller is silent. He never talks except for when he brings charges in court. So we actually don't yet know what the special counsel's office has determined is the legal standard for obstruction by a president. There's all kinds of really interesting legal questions that may ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court that we don't actually know where the special counsel's office stands. So then for you, as you look back on this year, what was the most important moment in the Mueller investigation? And then perhaps, and they may be the same, the most important discovery moment in your reporting? 
I would go back to the two tracks that Mueller has been on this year. I think that when history looks back on this year, the indictment of the Russians will be more important in our memory than perhaps it is right now while we're all obsessed with the question of what comes next on the Trump side of things. Just the extraordinary level of detail at which he was able to reveal this year what the Russians really did in 2016. But simultaneously, you know, when you look at the sort of scorecard now, the extraordinary number of people very close to the president who have now been convicted of crimes as part of this investigation, it's its just mind-blowing. The campaign chairman, the deputy campaign chairman, the national security advisor, Trump's longtime personal attorney, foreign policy advisor, I mean, just person after person convicted of crimes. And even if they're not, you know, coordinating with Russia, you just get this sort of continuous sense that there is criminality in all directions for this administration. So then at this point, what do we still not know about Trump's potential ties to Russia? I tend to believe that there are additional shoes left to drop. I mean, I think it's very important to be cautious because Bob Mueller is silent. We do not know what we do not know. We don't know what indictments are coming. We don't know what else he's going to reveal. But I do think that each little hint he's been offering suggests that there is more, there's more out there. Okay. And so then a final question to you, which you touched on before. Is there a potential here for real legal consequences for the president? Something that we often brush up against and can he do that is that, you know, a president has is typically not going to be indicted or subpoenaed or various other things. So are we at a moment here where, where we might face a challenge to the legal system to question whether it can, for example, indict a sitting president? Or are we not quite there yet? Well, we're not there yet. But I do think that sometimes people have the conversation about how the president can't be indicted and end that conversation too soon. It is true that there are these Department of Justice guidance documents that say that the Constitution does not allow the president to be indicted while in office. That does not mean that the president is completely without legal jeopardy. First of all, he can't be indicted while in office. He can be indicted for things he did while in office or earlier once he leaves office, which also allows the possibility of bringing an indictment, putting it under seal, and unsealing it the day after he leaves office. So he can be indicted after he leaves office. There could also be an attempt to test that constitutional theory by going ahead and bringing charges and letting the courts decide, not just letting this sort of Department of Justice guidance stand. And finally, there's another route that Mueller could take that I've heard some legal experts suggest is kind of interesting. When he issues his final report to his bosses at the Department of Justice, he could write a report in which he says that he has concluded that the President of the United States committed legal violations, and he could describe them. He could essentially say that if he were anyone else, he would have been indicted, but he has not been indicted because he's the president. But it could be an incredibly detailed description of all the ways in which the special counsel alleges he did, in fact, break the law. And if you got a report like that, it seems incredibly hard to believe that Congress would not, uh, particularly a Democratic-led House, would not pick up that report to consider whether uh, the legal violations found by the special counsel shouldn't be considered the basis for an impeachment. And perhaps voters might make different decisions based on that report as well. Absolutely. We're only uh, two years away from the 2020 election. 
All right. And we are just a few days away from 2019. So thank you, Roz, for for letting us know where we are at the end of, of 2018. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Now, at the end of 2018, special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election has led to this. 34 people have been charged with crimes. Seven people have pleaded guilty. And one person has been convicted by a jury. Thank you for listening to this episode, part two of our series on the legal threats surrounding President Trump as 2018 winds down. To listen to part one, you can check out our feed on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back in 2019. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the vacation-ready Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.